Holy, righteous Father, we ask for your help and blessing as we come now to not just remember our church history and the great and glorious things that you did uh, 500 years ago in the Reformation, but as we especially remember the gospel and as we see the beauty and the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus. Bless us, we pray. Help us to see Jesus and to treasure him. We ask in his name. Amen. So 500 years ago, this upcoming Tuesday, October 31st, a German monk named Martin Luther posted a theological paper called the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And little did he know at the time that doing so would literally change the world. Luther was a seminary professor at the time in 1517 of the University of Wittenberg in Germany when he posted this theological paper arguing against a number of abuses and abusive practices in the Roman Catholic Church regarding the sale of indulgences. Indulgences were a way to purchase remission of temporal punishment from sins. Okay? It was very much uh, either pay me now or pay me later in purgatory. And uh, the sale of indulgences was the pay me now part of that. And the paper that Luther put together, these 95 uh, theses on this subject, was never intended to be widely distributed. I mean, it was written in Latin, and it was not written in German, so it wasn't meant to be widely distributed in that way. And like other position papers that were posted on public doors, it was an invitation to fellow scholars to engage in an academic dialogue. He meant this to be peer-reviewed by other academics. It was not intended to be taken down and translated into the common language of the people and then copied and then distributed to the masses. But that's exactly what Luther's students did with it. And with the help of a newfangled invention at the time called the printing press, Luther's call for reformation went viral and countless copies were made, perhaps even thousands, and distributed. And with that, the Protestant Reformation went from an ember very much into a flame. Luther and the other reformers understood that what was at stake in the Reformation wasn't merely a a few surface level abuses here and there in the a dominant church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church. But rather, these doctrinal and moral corruptions in the church were rooted in a fundamental loss of essential Christianity. So these were not marginal issues. These were core issues of the Christian faith. The Protestant Reformation was Nothing less than the recovery of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, all of that took place 
500 years ago this upcoming Tuesday. But the issues at stake in the Reformation are just as relevant in 2017 as they were in 1517. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you five reasons why the Reformation still matters today. These five reasons are often referred to as the five solas of the Reformation. The Latin word sola means only uh, or alone. And the five solas were five slogans that summarize the core principles, theological principles of the Reformation. There were five of them. They did not originate all in that order, those five like we have them today, at the time of the Reformation, but some of them were there. And over time, you can look and you can see all of these kind of undergirding all that the Reformers are trying to do uh, in the recovery of the gospel. The five solas are, number one, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Sola fide, which means faith alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. And soli deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. Now, if all of this talk about solas in Latin is foreign to you, that's okay. It is a foreign language. It's a dead language, actually. And my one semester of Latin doesn't equip me at all to be able to teach you anything about Latin. But you don't need to know anything about Latin to understand the concepts that these slogans represent. So what I want to do is this. I want to unpack these five principles. I want to explain why they are essential to biblical Christianity and just show you where they're taught in the Bible. And, and rather than going about this and just looking at a whole bunch of different passages, there's certainly value in that. I want to just go to one text in First Peter chapter 1 and, and try to show you where we can see, at least principally, these five principles, just even in the flow of thought of one biblical author. It just permeates the Bible. If you can see it, if your eyes are opened to these principles... You will see them everywhere as you study Scripture. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, five reasons why the Reformation still matters today. Number one, the Reformation still matters today because Scripture is still our only sufficient, ultimate authority as Christians. Or as the slogan puts it, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has long taught that Scripture is not sufficient for us to know what God wants us to believe, what God wants us to do with our lives, how He wants us to live our lives. In addition to the Bible, we need things like tradition in the church and the official teachings of the church, which are equivalent in um, authority. And relevance as the Bible. The Bible alone is simply not sufficient to serve as our ultimate authority in faith and practice. That was the Roman Catholic view in Luther's day. It's still the Roman Catholic view today. But now, the Reformers didn't deny the authority of tradition. 
They didn't do that. They didn't deny the authority of the official teachings of the church. They didn't think you just go off by yourself with your Bible and you do everything on your own. They didn't believe that. In fact, there are many sources of authority in the Christian life, aren't there? Parental authority is children. That's God-sanctioned. Elders and deacons have authority in the church. Creeds and confessions have authority in the church and so forth. So the issue is not authority per se, but rather ultimate authority. The highest authority. That was the issue. The reformers taught that while things like church leaders and church creeds rightly have authority... They do not have authority over or equal to Scripture. Only Scripture is our ultimate authority. And the reason for that is grounded in the nature of Scripture itself. Because the words of Scripture are God's words, they have the same authority and purity and clarity and Inerrancy that God himself has. So if the church teaches something that is contrary to what God says in Scripture, it's not because God was speaking in both the church and the word and he just contradicted himself. Rather, it's because the church made an error. Only God and his word in Scripture is infallible and without error. So that was Luther's argument when the Roman Catholic Church confronted him at the Diet of Worms or Worms in 1521. Now, the Diet of Worms is not a way to lose weight, okay? I think if we went on a Diet of Worms, all of us would lose weight. That doesn't sound very good at all. Diet was means a formal meeting or assembly. And Worms or Worms in German was just the city in Germany where the meeting was held. So an official church meeting in a place in the south-southwest of uh, Frankfurt, Germany, called Worms. And Luther was confronted by the Roman Catholic Church over his teaching, which confronted the errors in Roman Catholicism. And he was told in that meeting, we're not going to have a debate about this, we just want you to recant, to renounce your views to repudiate what you have written and what you've been teaching. That was the sole goal of the church as they met with Luther on this occasion. But listen to what Luther said in response to that demand. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by plain reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. That was Luther's stand when the purity and authority and sufficiency of God's written word was challenged. The reason Luther's conscience was captive to Scripture above popes, 
above councils and above anything else is because Luther rightly believed that only Scripture is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Which is why the Apostle Peter speaks the way he does about Scripture here in 1 Peter 1. Look at verses 10 through 12. This is, this is not a full-blown argument for sola scriptura. I could grant that. But just, just observe the way Peter speaks of the authority and nature of Scripture in a way that the Bible never speaks of any other source of authority. The Bible doesn't talk like this about church traditions, about church creeds and confessions, about what a pastor says, uh, books that you find in Barnes & Noble. The Bible only speaks this way about itself. So listen to what Peter says about God's word. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched diligently and carefully inquiring what person or time, and now listen, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Not just they were indicating, but the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. By who? By God. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. See, in the first nine verses of the letter, Peter has unpacked the gospel. That's the salvation he mentions in verse 10. And then in verses 10 through 12, he reminds his readers of the great privilege they have as recipients of God's revelation. Recipients of that revelation through the word of God, which testifies from cover to cover of the good news of salvation in Jesus. The prophets that he's referring to is shorthand for the Old Testament. And, and look at how he describes them. They didn't prophesy on their own. They didn't present a mix of their thoughts and errors together with God's thoughts and purity, where you have kind of some truth and some error. They spoke as the Spirit of Christ in them spoke. In such a way that it was simultaneously what they were saying, but exactly what the Holy Spirit was saying. Which means there's no errors. Which means there's perfect purity. Scripture never attributes that kind of divine authority to any other source of authority in the church today. Not to traditions, not to councils, not to leaders not even to creeds and confessions. They are all under the supreme authority, the decisive authority, the sufficient authority of Scripture. Now, notice, notice the relationship between that principle that we call Sola Scriptura and the other four principles of the Reformation. Peter's telling us here not just about the unique authority of Scripture, but about the central focus and teaching of Scripture. What's at the very center 
of what God has revealed to us through his word. Who is that person or time that Peter mentions that's at the center of salvation that all the Old Testament prophets look forward to, that all the New Testament apostles and uh, authorized uh, apostolic um, scripture writers focused on? What were they looking at? What were they driving at? What was the center of everything that they wrote about? Who was the person or time Peter's referring to here that scripture is looking intently at from cover to cover? That's the answer of the second sola, namely solus Christus, which is Latin for Christ alone. The Reformation is still relevant for us today because Jesus is still our only all-sufficient Savior. Now, you may be wondering why that was even up for discussion in the Christian church. I mean, isn't the centrality right, and the sufficiency of Jesus a given by those who would call themselves a church? Now, it seems odd that that would even be a discussion, but sadly, it's not a given. Not in Luther's day, not in our day either. Here's a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church on what it calls the treasury of merit that forgives sins. Listen to how it starts off with Jesus, okay, but then suddenly, but very clearly moves off the centrality and the sufficiency of Jesus when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. Just just listen to this. It's an extended quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's still used today. The treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. So far, that sounds pretty good. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. So far, that sounds pretty good. But now listen to what the catechism says next. This treasury, this source of grace and forgiveness, this treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have fallen in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission of the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body, that is the church. Does that sound like Jesus alone is Savior? That His work alone is all-sufficient for our salvation? Notice that according to the Roman Catholic Church, we're not to pursue and trust in the work and merit of Jesus alone, but also of Mary and of all the saints 
And that's not just an, an obscure teaching that nobody really pays attention to, right? The, it's, it's a big catechism. There's a lot of stuff in there. That's not like one of the ones in the back somewhere that nobody really ever pays attention to. That is front and center. That is at the heart of what so many in the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day and even today pursue for their salvation. A number of years ago, and as I was working in Louisville, I had several co-workers who were Roman Catholic and very devout Roman Catholics. And we would talk from time to time about the faith. And I'll never forget one conversation I had with them about the Virgin Mary. So I asked them why they felt the need to pray to Mary and to ask Mary to intercede for them between them and Jesus. Why not just go straight to Jesus? How come you don't just pray mostly to him? Why do you have to have somebody like Mary to go between you and and Jesus, and their answer is just quite revealing. And very much in line with the Roman Catholic displacement of the centrality and sufficiency of Jesus in salvation, they said they went to Mary because they weren't comfortable going straight to God on their own. They were not comfortable going right to Jesus on their own. Remember growing up, if you got in trouble at school or on the playground, and he had to come home and he had to tell the parents about it. Which parent did you go to first? Who went to dad first to tell them what they'd got wrong at school? No. You always went to mom first. Whenever dad sent you to bed without dinner, it was always mom who brought up that little plate, right? Mom was always the, the, the more comforting one. She was always easier to go to with our problems. Mary is seen in this view as more relatable more understanding, quicker to be gracious and merciful, more accessible. And since her good works can count for us, then they go to Mary for salvation and not straight away to Jesus and only to Jesus. In fact, many Roman Catholics refer to Mary with the title co-redemptrix or co Redeemer because of her essential role with Jesus in salvation. There are whole churches named after Mary in the Roman Catholic Church. And add to that, add to that, the fact that in order to get in on that treasury of merit, you have to go through the whole Roman Catholic sacerdotal system. You have to go through the priesthood. You can't go right to it. You have to go through the sacraments. You can't just go straight to Jesus. You can't even go straight to to the the treasury of merit. You don't have access to that. Now, in, in none of this does the Roman Catholic Church deny the necessity of Jesus. Right? We heard that, right? What is being denied here is the sufficiency of Jesus. That's why the slogan is Christ alone. You don't have to go to somebody else to get Jesus. Jesus has come to me. Not come to something else to get to me. Come to me. Coming to me is coming to the Father. Now compare compare that view, which looks to Jesus plus Mary plus the saints plus our efforts to access salvation through our religiosity, with what Peter says in verses 3 through 4. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now listen, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice that the entire Christian life, from beginning to eternity, is in view here. Christians are born again to an inheritance in heaven. Now, whose merit secures that? Is it Jesus plus Mary plus the saints plus... No. It's Jesus plus nothing gives us access to everything in God's storehouse, His treasury of grace. Salvation from beginning to end is through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And in terms of that reluctance to go straight away to Jesus, just listen to verse 8. You haven't seen Him, but you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter's saying, you don't need somebody to go in between you and Jesus. He is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not an angry judge. You go straight to Jesus and you treasure Him. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. But now here's the question. How do we get in on that salvation in Christ alone? Those are the next two solas. We'll take those together. Sola fide and sola gratia. Faith alone and grace alone. The Reformation still matters today, 500 years later, because we still receive Jesus and all of His saving benefits by grace alone through faith alone. Luther considered this the article by which the church stands or falls. He understood the whole religious enterprise of trying to receive salvation by means of what we do for Jesus, rather than simply receiving and relying upon what Jesus does for us, he considered that whole enterprise of religiosity as antithetical to the purity of the gospel. For countless years, Luther did everything humanly possible to earn a right standing with God by his own religious efforts. He entered the monastery... He prayed without ceasing, he fasted without ceasing, he served without ceasing, he denied himself in extreme ways without ceasing. He would sometimes spend hours confessing his sins and then go back and do it again because he forgot some or he sinned in the uh, intervening moments. He did everything in his power to keep God's commands, to make up for his sins, and to earn God's favor. In Luther's words, listen... If ever a monk could get into heaven by his monkery, it was me. But Luther never arrived at that peace. Instead, the harder he worked to receive God's acceptance, the further out of reach it seemed. The more he saw his sin, the more he saw the problem of his sin. And how he can never expiate all of it. He can never get rid of it. 
Standing in his way was biblical phrases like the righteousness and the justice of God. How could he ever live up to that standard? So here's how Luther articulated it. As he describes his being born again, coming to the gospel. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans... And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would appease Him. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God, that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scriptures took on a whole new meaning And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. The passage of Paul became to me the gate of heaven. See Luther's breakthrough there? He got it. He can't earn God's favor by keeping God's rules. But the righteous receive it by faith. Because the righteousness is not his righteousness. It's the righteousness that Jesus earned. That we receive by sheer grace through faith. It was to Luther as if the the gates of heaven, which were ironclad and locked, were suddenly swung open. And he had full, free, and forever access to peace with God. I wonder if you've ever experienced, by the way, that kind of spiritual breakthrough. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've seen your efforts to get right with God ineffective? You felt in your conscience that it just it, it never quite deals with your sin, all of your religion, all of your effort. All of your self-effort has not gotten you the peace with God that you've heard about. Have you, like Luther, come to that point where you have just abandoned the whole project of self-effort religion and just embraced the all-sufficient grace and mercy and sufficiency of Christ's righteousness? Have you taken hold of Jesus by faith And not by your self-effort. Let me show you where that's right here in 1 Peter. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Questions. Here we go. Just walk through the text. Look at the text. Answer these questions. Who causes us to be spiritually born again? 
us or God. According to whose sheer mercy are we saved? Ours or God's? Who keeps, who keeps our heavenly inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Us or God? Whose power guards us through faith for salvation? Our power or God's power? Who uses even trials to strengthen our faith so that it perseveres into the end? Us or God? Just look, where is self-effort in any of that? Where are you contributing to your own salvation in any of that? Salvation is by sheer grace alone, and it is received by faith apart from any of our self-effort. So on the foundation of Scripture alone, the Reformers taught that salvation is in Christ alone, it is by grace alone, it is through faith alone, and now lastly, it is all aiming at one chief end, namely the glory of God alone. The Reformation still matters. Because the glory in salvation still goes exclusively to God in Christ and not to us. That's highlighted, isn't it? The very first question in the larger and shorter catechism, that, that wonderful those wonderful catechisms that are the fruit of the Reformation. First, first question, what's the chief end, the highest end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why you exist. That's why God made you. That's why God redeemed you. So that you would bring Him glory by enjoying Him forever. But notice, those are not two different ends. As though some Christians glorify God and other Christians enjoy God. No, they are one end. We glorify God by enjoying Him. You've heard me say it many times. John Piper puts it very well. God is most glorified us in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's what the Catechism is saying. Now, how does that work? Very briefly... Think about what it means to glorify something. Okay? How do diehard Indians fans glorify the Indians? Okay? Some of you out there are, are ready for answers. Okay? How do diehard Indians fans glorify, use that word, glorify the Indians? Well, they listen to the Indians or they watch them on TV. They go and they cheer at the games. They love the Indians. They hate the Yankees. They're always talking about the Indians, right? They wear Indian swag. They delight to invest time and money and energy and thought and all kinds of things into making much of the Indians. That's what it means to glorify something. If you're not an Indians fan or a big baseball fan, substitute whatever you like. Gardening, right? I'd say the Browns. I'm not going to go there. Folks, that is the Christ-glorifying joy that Peter's talking about in verse 8. Just listen one more time. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Nothing brings Jesus more glory than when He is treasured like this. 
than when He is the object of our deepest love and faith and inexpressibly glorious joy. Here's why. That exalts Him because it says that He is more lovely, He is more true and trustworthy, more satisfying than anything else in creation. Now, here's how this ties into everything else we've seen so far. Okay, Take any of those solas away that we just mentioned. And you forfeit that joy. And God's glory in your pursuit of your own glory. That's what's at stake. The only way to preserve God's highest glory in us and our deepest joy in Him is by taking Him at His word alone... Resting in the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That preserves God as your highest treasure. That preserves God as getting all the glory and you getting all of the joy in salvation. That's the gospel. That is why the Reformation still matters today. And it's with that that we close. If there's one major mistake that Protestants make when they go to understand the Reformation, it's this. That the Reformation was 500 years ago and that's done. The Reformation is not over and it's never going to be over this side of heaven. It's not just the Roman Catholic Church that needs Reformation. Every human being Needs reformation. Every believer in Christ constantly must be reforming because we are still sinners. Our default is not the five solas. Our default is to abandon the five solas unless we are intentional and strive by God's grace to keep those five solas central in our lives. We're going to miss out on the beauty and the purity of the gospel that the reformation recovered and reaffirmed. So today, as we, as we pause to thank God for the great work that he did in bringing reformation to the church 500 years ago, and for the fact that we're here today as recipients of that great work, okay? We need to remember, even as we look back, we, we have to be looking forward as well. We are the fruit of previous generations who treasured and spread the gospel, and as we remember that today, may, may God grant us more grace to treasure and spread the same gospel so that many future generations like us would bear its fruit. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, head of the church, all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior, thank you for the purity of the gospel. Thank you for preserving the purity of the gospel. And grant us all that we stand in need of because of the gospel to treasure it, preserve it, and to spread it as your people today. Be glorified in our joy in you, we pray. Amen.